Good morning, church. Take three. Today we are going to look at one of the most well-known parables. It's the parable of the mustard seed. No, just kidding. We're looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's this news article uh, that I read yesterday in the Daily Mail, and it says this. Good Samaritan 62 withdraws $10,000 from the bank before handing out $100 notes to jobless workers queuing outside Centrelink offices. You see, everybody knows, or they think they know, what a Good Samaritan is. And I think even in Christian circles, we think that the Good Samaritan is just a nice story that Jesus told in order for us to love one another. And while that's partially true, I don't think that's the real reason that Jesus gave us this passage in Luke chapter 10. So I have three aims for us today. First, I want to clarify the meaning behind this well-known parable and see it in the context that it was originally written. And secondly, I want to challenge what it means for us to love our neighbours as ourselves. And finally, I want to give us an opportunity to turn to Jesus. So now I'm going to invite Pastor Joe to come and give us today's reading. You can find it in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Let's read God's word together. Verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher! He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went down to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Thanks, Joe. Uh, The context of this story is really important in understanding what is being said. If you examine the parable in self-isolation, you might come to the conclusion that it has some hidden meaning, an allegory perhaps. Uh, In fact, one of the earliest beliefs held by the church about this passage was as follows. The man who was going down is Adam, Jerusalem is paradise, Jericho is the world. The robbers are hostile powers, the priest is the law, the Levite is the prophets, the Samaritan is Christ. The wounds are disobedience, the beast is the Lord's body, the inn which accepts all who wish to enter is the church, The manager of the inn is the head of the church to whom its care has been entrusted, and the fact that the Samaritan promises he will return 
represents the Saviour's second coming. Now, of course, while there is some truth and meaning from that, it's not the reason that Jesus told this parable and completely misses the point. And if we add a little more context and assume that the parable is simply an introduction to the question, who is my neighbor, then we would probably conclude that Jesus is trying to teach us that anybody is our neighbor, that we ought to love everybody, including our enemies. But I think even this reading of the parable misses the point that Jesus is really trying to make. The larger context that we need to understand starts in verse 25. Jesus is responding to an expert in the law, a lawyer, if you will, but not like today's lawyers. This lawyer was an expert in religious law, and we're told in verse 25 that he has come to test Jesus. This isn't an innocent query from someone who genuinely wants to know how to get eternal life. This is someone who has studied the law and religion all his life, and he mistakenly thinks that he already has obtained it. He thinks he knows exactly what it means, and in his mind, he's got it all figured out. In fact, he probably prides himself on teaching others how to get eternal life as well. And so it's really within this context that Jesus gives us this parable. Jesus exposes the man's flawed theology, and he directly challenges his self-righteous view. How does Jesus do all that? Well, we'll take a deeper look. In our weekly church grace groups, we've been looking into the idea of questioning evangelism. Uh, one example of questioning evangelism might be like this. Imagine if someone comes up to you and they say, do you really believe that God would send everybody who doesn't believe in him to hell? Now that's a pretty tough question to answer. Questioning evangelism would suggest that we reply with a question. For example, well, do you believe that everybody should go to heaven then? And maybe some follow-up questions might be, well, what about evil people like Hitler? Should he go to heaven too? And what criteria should there be for people who make it into heaven, etc., etc.? It's a method of engaging with someone in thought-provoking conversation. And we have the privilege of observing Jesus apply a similar tactic with this lawyer. So notice the structure of the conversation that's taking place, and I'll paraphrase here. The man first asks a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Instead of answering, Jesus asks his own question, what does the law say? The man answers Jesus' question, love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus answers the man's question, correct. That's how you get eternal life. You see, the man asks a question, Jesus asks a question, the man answers, and then Jesus answers. And notice that this cycle actually repeats itself one more time. The man asks a second question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus asks him a question in return. But he needs to set up this question, and so he tells the parable that Joe has just read for us. And Jesus then asks, which of the three men was a neighbor? The man then answers Jesus' question. He says, the one who had mercy. And Jesus answers his initial question, therefore, go and do likewise. Jesus' intent here is not to be evasive, uh, but at the same time, he doesn't want to spoon-feed spoon answers to this man. Instead, he wants to challenge. He wants to provoke this lawyer into thinking about what he's really asking. In fact, the same or similar questions are asked of Jesus at various times in the Gospels. Uh, depending on the situation, Jesus adapts his approach. For example, in John chapter 3, we read about Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who asked Jesus how he could be born again. 
and he leaves perplexed. The rich young ruler in Mark chapter 11 asks the same question, what must I do to get eternal life? And he leaves disturbed and downcast, unable to part with his wealth. We actually don't know what happens to the lawyer after this encounter, but you can be sure that Jesus left him with a stone in his shoe. He was left with something to think about, something that disturbed him and caused him to think. There's also some cultural and historical context that we need to be aware of to fully appreciate what's being said here. Jesus asked the man in verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The man replies in verse 27, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible scholars amongst you will, know, will be familiar with the man's response. And that's because Jesus himself has said it a couple of times when he was asked what the most important commandments are. Uh, once in Mark chapter 12 and another time in Matthew chapter 22. And the lawyer is actually quoting two very famous verses from the Old Testament. The first comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4-6 and is known as the Shema. Even today, Jews will recite this portion of scripture in their prayers. Any Jew in Jesus' day would have been able to instantly answer correctly with this same response to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, all your soul, and all your mind. And the second quotation comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It says this, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now many people know this as the golden rule, and in the Western world it is often phrased like this, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And this principle has been adopted by most, almost every world religion in some shape or form. So if you had to summarize the entire law, you could do it with these two statements. You just have to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love others as yourself. If you want to fulfill the law of God and inherit eternal life, then you just have to do those two things 100% of the time. So now we're going to have another look at the parable. I've hired some professional actors to help me. Uh, because of the current situation, they're going to try as best they can to stay 1.5 meters apart. Uh, you may be able to spot some of these uh, actors doubling up if you have a keen eye. Uh, and so let's begin. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled came where the man was and when he saw him he took as he travelled 
came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, bandaged his wounds first, pouring on oil and wine, keeping his away. He put the man on his own giraffe and brought him to an inn. Brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, the Good Samaritan took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. The end. Woo, let's give them a round of applause. They did a fantastic job. Uh, something that might surprise you is that there were actually seven characters in that story, but there were only three actors. How amazing is that? Uh, obviously, if you liked that, you liked the quality of content that you saw there, please hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, so that we can keep bringing you this high-quality content from professional actors, only one of them who gets paid. Uh, so make sure you do that uh, so that we can keep doing this every Sunday for you. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notorious for wayward travelers. It was a windy road where robbers could easily hide around corners and, and take advantage of unsuspecting journeymen, as we saw above. So common were these incidents, actually, that it was given the name the Way of the Blood because of the sheer amount of bloodshed at the hands of robbers there. Jews and Samaritans, they had centuries-old rivalry, and the hatred ran deep. When northern Israel was conquered by the Assyrians, the Israelites intermarried and effectively lost their status as God's people. Their capital city was called Samaria, and so they became known as Samaritans. They didn't respect the temple or God and were considered traitors of the nation. And so the pure-blood Jews hated the Samaritans and vice versa. Just imagine if Jesus had suggested that a black person helped a white supremacist, for example, or maybe a Holocaust survivor helping a neo-Nazi. It's that kind of shocking reaction that this lawyer would have felt when he heard about a Samaritan helping a Jew. The priest of all people, he should have been the role model, the shining example. He, his job was to serve God in the temple, and of all people, he should have known to love his neighbor as himself. At very least, he should have stopped to see if the man was still alive. The Levite, the Levite was like a temple servant who helped the priests in religious duties. He too should have known better. But both of them failed to show their own countrymen even a second thought. In fact, they go out of their way to purposely avoid him, passing by on the other side. Maybe they were worried that they would also fall prey to the same bandits from earlier. Or maybe they were in a rush to get to some important religious duty. These two men represent the Jewish religious leaders. And Jesus indicts them and all who they represent. Jesus takes a swing at people just like this expert lawyer who think that they have fully complied with the law of God. But actually, they don't love God. They don't love their neighbor. Because if they loved God, they'd love their neighbor. And if they loved their neighbor, then they would have attended to this poor victim. But they don't. And if they don't, 
those pious men, if they don't help this poor man, then who will? Will anyone help him? But of course we know the Samaritan comes along. And let's look at what he does. Verse 33 to 35. The Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Instead of avoiding him, the Samaritan has compassion for him. Instead of fearing for his own safety, he makes himself completely vulnerable in order to help him. Instead of seeing the man's nakedness and his injuries, thinking, I don't know how to help someone like this, he takes pity on him. Instead of backing away from a confronting scene straight out of ER, he gets to work in patching him up. He tends to the man's wounds by using his own oil and wine to clean them and provide relief where he can. He doesn't have his own bandages, so he tears strips from his own clothes to bandage the man's wounds. He foregoes his own comfort and carefully puts the man on his own donkey or giraffe instead. He casts aside any other plans that he may have had and turns his attention to finding the best possible care for this man, a roadside inn. He spends the entire night nursing the man's injuries, providing food and water as needed. And the next day, he, put, he pays the innkeeper two denarii, which is roughly two days' wages, to look after him. Uh, historians actually recovered uh, a signboard that was from an inn in the Roman Empire. And the signboard said that it cost one thirty-second of a denarii to stay for one night at an inn. And so with two denarii, you could effectively pay for 64 days of accommodation. This man paid for six, two months' worth of accommodation for this man. And as if that was not enough, he also gives the innkeeper, innkeeper his credit card, an open blank check. Any extra expenses, whatever it takes, he'll cover them when he returns. And yes, he's going to return. He's already made plans to return and check up on the stranger to make sure that he fully recovers. Uh, sometime last month, I went to visit my brother-in-law in hospital. Uh, I think he had the coronavirus. Uh, actually, it was, it was never clear uh, what he actually had. No one really knows. Ryan, if you're watching, your secret is safe with me. Uh, anyway, I got, I got a text message uh, saying that he was in hospital. And so Chris and I decided to be good Samaritans and visit him. So I waited until roughly lunchtime. Lunchtime rolled around and I made the 15-minute trek from my office through dangerous Sydney CBD to pay him a visit. And uh, when we got there, we had to wait for like an eternity as Ryan was having a shower. Uh, fortunately, I didn't have to give him or anybody else any money, and he was discharged later on that afternoon, so I didn't have to visit him again. Uh, so you can see how my example of visiting my brother-in-law kind of pales in comparison to the kind of love that the Good Samaritan showed. You see, if you want to be the Good Samaritan in this parable, you can't just do a once-off nice thing for somebody. I mentioned earlier there was you know, a guy in Melbourne handing out $100 notes to, to people in line at Centrelink. And now don't get me wrong, that's a generous act, and you know, definitely society needs people like him. But I don't want to diminish what he did, but as generous as he was, 
it doesn't come close to what the Good Samaritan has shown us. When's the last time you saw someone's need and you risked your own personal safety? When you got involved in a messy and perhaps out-of-your-depth situation? When you tore your own clothes and let them bleed all over your new car seats? When you cancelled your plans for the next few days, you stayed up all night tending to them, and then you gave them unrestricted access to your bank accounts and promised to help them for the unforeseeable future? When's the last time you did that? And this person that you supposedly helped in this way, were they a complete stranger to you who you would call an enemy? You see, Jesus' point is that the Good Samaritan's love is outlandish. It's outrageous. It's unlimited. It's lavish. It's beyond, beyond description, this kind of love. It's a love that is unprecedented. It's astronomical. It's out of this world. It's an incredible, amazing kind of love and it's directed at a complete stranger who is his enemy. It's a love that has total disregard for one's own safety and convenience and looks only at the other's benefit. It does not seek any kind of reward in return. There's no way that we love like that. I don't love like that. I don't think you love like that. I don't think we even have the capacity to love like that. We don't love our friends or even the people that we like like that, to that extent, my brother-in-law is a perfect example. I mean, who loves him like that? Or you might do these things for yourself. You'd make sure that you get the best care if you were in an accident. You'd spend your time and your resources, your own energy on yourself, wouldn't you? You'd do everything in your power to ensure you get the best care. And maybe you reserve that kind of love for your spouse, perhaps, or maybe your children. But would you do it for someone you hate? Would you do it for someone who thought that you were the scum of the earth? Would you do it for someone who wanted to harm you and your kids? No, you wouldn't do that. And you know what? Even if you managed to do it just once, happen chance, well done. Now go and do it for everyone you ever come across 100% of the time. Do it perfectly. Love everyone else just as you love yourself. No, of course, there's no way that we could do that. And so Jesus asked this question in verse 36. What, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Notice that this is actually a different question to what the expert in the law asks back in verse 29. In verse 29, the, law, the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? And he means to imply, who should I show love to? But that's not the question that Jesus is asking here. Jesus is actually asking, which of these men demonstrated what it means to be a neighbor? In other words, what makes a neighbor a neighbor? What kinds of things do they do? How do they love? You see, the expert in the law asked, who qualifies to be my neighbor? Or who should I love? But Jesus is asking, what does an unqualified love look like? What does reckless love look like? Who do you love in an unqualified way? And of course the answer, a neighbor is one who looks like the Good Samaritan, who does what the Good Samaritan does. Unrestrained, unconditional, unqualified, outrageous, lavish, without reservation, love to even their enemies. 
And so the passage concludes with Jesus answering the man's question and driving home his point. What must this man do to inherit eternal life? Verse 37, he has to go and do likewise. If you want to inherit eternal life, Jesus is saying, you need to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, all your mind, and you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're not sure what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, just look at what the Good Samaritan did. You need to be able to love complete strangers who are your enemies. You need to love them unselfishly, outrageously, and without limit 100% of the time. Then eternal life is yours. Hopefully we get a bit of an idea of, of how this expert in the law feels now. You see, he thought he was a pretty good bloke as far as things go. He thought he knew what it meant to obey the law and have eternal life. He came to test Jesus, but now he's left shell-shocked, gobsmacked, broken. He came thinking he was justified, but left without a leg to stand on. Oh, the things that he must have been thinking. I've never loved anyone like that. I haven't even come close to loving like that. I can't love like that. As I mentioned before, we don't know what happens to the expert in the law after that. Perhaps like the rich young man, he went away sad, unable to get past his own religiosity and ingrained in his ways. But perhaps there is hope for him, like the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Maybe he went away, realized his hopeless position, beat his breast, not dare look up to heaven, and cry out, God have mercy on me, a sinner. You see, had the lawyer acknowledged the error in his ways and turned to the one before him, Jesus, who alone could forgive and cleanse him of his unrighteousness, then this story may have ended very differently. This parable was never meant to make us feel guilty about not loving our enemies. It's not about giving money to the poor or about helping those who are in need. It's not meant for us to say, well, you know, I need to try really, really hard to love others like this good Samaritan so that I can then have eternal life. No, this story reveals to us that we are guilty of not loving our neighbor and secondly, that we are ultimately guilty of not loving God. It shows us just how far we've fallen short of God's perfect standard and how we are incapable of being justified through obedience to the law. This story shows us that when it comes to loving God, we are as guilty as the priest and Levite who passed by on the other side. A proper understanding of this passage will cause us to identify with the half-dead, beaten-up guy who was helpless to improve his own situation. He could only rely on the mercy and grace of another, of a stranger. According to the Bible, no matter how hard we try, we are incapable of meeting the criteria by which a man may enter heaven based on his own merit. We can do nothing for our spiritual poverty. We are bankrupt before God without a leg to stand on. There are two ways that you can have eternal life. The first method, you perfectly fulfill the law by loving God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind 100% of the time and others as yourself, just as the lawyer thought that he had done but could never do. Then there's the second method. You recognize that we can never fulfill the law of God, and instead we turn to him for help. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Unless you have mercy on me and save me from my sin, I'll never be able to inherit eternal life based on what I've done. There's only one person who ever qualified through the first method, 
His name is Jesus. He loved God perfectly and others too. Everything he did was because of his outrageous, unconditional, unlimited, astronomical, phenomenal love for his Father in heaven and for us. He proved it by the way that he lived his life and the death he died for us on the cross. The Bible teaches that unless we repent and choose to believe in him, we will never be able to inherit eternal life. And let me close with this verse, John 6, 28-29. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the good works God requires? Jesus answered. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. If you've done the non-work of believing in Jesus and trusted him for your eternity, then you can have confidence even in these uncertain times. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this example, for the example of Jesus and this interaction with, with this lawyer. Father, we thank you that your love for us is just like this Good Samaritans, that your love for us really is unexplainable. It's limitless, it's unconditional. You love us in a way that we can't even fathom, that we can't understand, that we can't emulate. Father, I pray that we would come to the realization that we could never meet your perfect standard, that we could never be like you, perfect. And Father, I pray that as we come to this realization, that we would turn to you for help, that we would turn to you for mercy and turn to you for grace. Father, I pray for us. I pray that as we come to terms with what you've done for us through sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for us, that we would have joy, that you restore to us our hope, a hope that cannot be extinguished. Father, I thank you for all this. In Jesus' name, amen.